0: And welcome to a special edition of the McGregor podcast. I'm Mark Bricker, your host for this special Hot Topic podcast series. Recently on a Wednesday night as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a Hot Topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading the topic, Thinking Biblically About Religious Liberty. Joining me now is Pastor Russell. Welcome, Pastor. Hey man, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me, Brother Mark. Now hopefully our listeners have already listened to part one because it was very foundational to this talk. It really was.
1: We 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 uh that first section was called orientation, right? And if you if you are listening to this one first, you really are going to get a sense, whoa, I'm jumping in in the middle of something, mm-hmm. and
0: you are. Yeah. And you are. And if you're an outliner, part 1 that we had uh, previously was orientation. Mm-hmm. The second part we'll cover first here is expectations, right? And then the third part is obligations. Correct. So, the re- really big picture, what do you hope to cover in these these last two sections?
1: It's easy to uh, to kind of lazily drift into thinking about religious freedom in terms of uh, benefits to me. I, because I have something called religious liberty, I should be able to. to, 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 to. But as with most freedoms, uh, religious, religious liberty creates obligations for the believer. Hmm. And also, before we get to obligations, it's not a bad idea to set our expectations appropriately. It's a it's almost a counseling cliche, Brother Mark. I know you've shared this in counseling. I know I have. That often we, we, we get stressed and upset because of the difference between our reality and our, um, pardon me, our reality and our expectations. There it is for those that yeah. are watching on YouTube. And uh, since our reality is less variable than our expectations, it's a good idea to make sure we have really grounded expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think religious freedom is one of those areas where we need to think realistically about expectations
0: and just a sidebar nobody's watching on youtube this is an audio only podcast oh yeah, so, wow so uh I expectations my were, were higher on your hand and reality was lower so. i combed my hair in everything <laughs> i'm sorry a waste of what five seconds at there? least yeah? that I'm of sorry, all these yeah. people's lives all right well join wow. me now as we listen to part two of thinking biblically about religious liberty
1: talk about expectations in light of in light of uh, our liberty expectations 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 19 is another baseline beloved remember God is using God the Holy Spirit is using Simon Peter to write this Beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't supposed to happen, the old fisherman would say differently. Don't think it's strange as though something, or don't think uh, it's surprising as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? US history does not create a privileged exception category to this normal Christian expectation. We don't get to put a sticker over 1 Peter four twelve 12 through 19 that says, yeah, but wait a minute, we're Americans. Right? In Mark's opener, he talked about our brothers and sisters all over the world that at this moment do not enjoy some of the liberties we enjoy. Well, it's not just in February of 23 around the world. It's 2,000 years of faithful Christian history. You and I inhabit an oasis in a a vast time and place desert of people reading this paragraph and going, thank you, Holy Spirit, for reminding us that persecution is the norm and is to be expected. But here's... Here's some good news. Our capacity to live for Jesus is not and cannot be extinguished by the loss or erosion of civil freedoms. Our capacity to live for Jesus is not and cannot be extinguished by the loss of civil freedoms. And what pushes back on civil freedoms? A cultural consensus that those commonly held beliefs of what makes a coherent society, which is very different. I'm 61. It's very different. Not just different from when I grew up. It's different than from when I was young. It's different than from when I was more defensively middle-aged. For 2,000 plus years, Christianity has eaten oppression for lunch and grown in faithfulness under it. I am not advocating for oppression, but I would have you join me in not fearing it. I've defined joy in several settings. Joy, that inner sense of contentment that arises from knowing that everything that matters forever is settled forever. Nobody in downtown Fort Myers has access to that. Nobody in Tallahassee has access to that. Nobody in Washington DC has access to that. Nobody at UN headquarters has access to that. None of those entities for all their bluster can touch my awareness that everything that matters forever has been settled forever. If, you, if your joy is vulnerable to any set of current events, now listen, I'm not talking about happiness. Happiness. I can be unhappy about all kinds of things. I bet you can too. But if your joy is vulnerable to shifting earthly circumstances, the problem is not in the shifting earthly circumstances. In fact, since our capacity to live for Jesus is not and cannot be extinguished by loss of civil liberties, another corollary to that is our effectiveness in living for Jesus is not necessarily enabled by the presence of such liberties. Right now, this week, without fear of organized persecution, well, let me ask it this way. Suppose you lived in some brutal, repressive regime that said that it was absolutely illegal for you to go to your 10 nearest residential neighbors and tell them with love but clarity that your 10 nearest neighbors, suppose you lived in a place where it was flatly illegal for you to go to your 10 nearest neighbors and tell them in love that apart from Christ, they're gonna go to hell forever. But if they will turn from their sin and trust Jesus, they can live forever in heaven with him. Suppose it were absolutely and suddenly illegal for you to do that. Would it make any difference in how you've lived the last year? Surely with all this marvelous religious liberty we have, your 10 nearest neighbors have heard your testimony regarding Jesus, right? Surely they have. And I'm not picking on you. I just... There's something oddly academic about the passionate defense of religious liberty that is not being actively exploited for the sake of the Great Commission. Right? Right? There are lots of other consequences of religious liberty, too, but surely that's that's one. And my point is (laughs) that 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 loss of that liberty would not affect your ability to live faithfully for Jesus. But the granting of that liberty is not going to throw a switch that makes you effective witness or ambassador. Whether or not you are an effective witness and ambassador, that function exists largely irrespective. There are faithful, devout Christians in North Korea tonight. Communist China, the Ukraine. There are faithful, devout Christians living in all those places. You have the liberty to gather together with other believers. I'm so glad you're here tonight. I truly am. It is a joy to gather together. So much love and connectedness in this room. I haven't got enough years in a lifetime to get to know and love everybody here personally as much as I wish I could. Life goes by too fast. But I know of many of your connections with one another and have had the opportunity. To, to interact with, work with, serve with, share with, many of you myself. And I just love that if you, could, if you could suddenly sort of draw a spider web in this room of everyone who would say, I have a deep, deep connection with that person and, and just watch that spider web light this room up, that would be an amazing thing. And I believe that's what this body of Christ is. And I'm glad, and I'm glad you're here tonight. Would you have crossed a police line to get in here tonight? Would you? Would you have a a conviction regarding the gathering of the body of Christ that is grounded in Scripture such that if they parked police cars at every entrance to this campus and told you you're not allowed in, you'd come anyway? After all, we obey the government God has placed over us until conviction is violated such conviction being biblically grounded when obedience to the word if and when obedience to the word places you in the realm of deliberate defiant civil disobedience are you ready are you ready are you are you ready to be unemployable If your employer were to require of you that you sign some sort of pledge or affirmation which clearly placed you in scriptural disobedience, not just preference violation, but scriptural disobedience, would you be willing to say, well, that's it, then I guess I can no longer work for this company, this industry, maybe, you ready? Is, is your faith resolved enough for that? Family alienation? Jesus said, I will separate parents from kids, siblings from siblings. Would you, would you be ready to say, I don't have an option here? Civil penalties, criminal penalties. I joke all the time over there that some of what I, and not just me, other members of our teaching team, there are certain passages that if you do a faithful exposition of that passage, in other nations, not far from here, you have committed a hate crime, and that's not just a civil, that's a criminal offense, off to jail with you. It couldn't happen here because of the Bill of Rights. Hold, hold, hold that thought. The Bill of Rights will not survive a shifting cultural consensus because it is out of that shifting cultural consensus that legislators, Supreme Court justices, presidents, and magistrates all. Come. The Bill of Rights is not the 67th book of the Christian Bible. What would you do? How far would you stand? You know, in this conversation in 20th century history, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer often comes up because of his defiance, heroic defiance, of, a, of the Nazi regime. Heroic life. For the glory of God, heroic death. When Paul said, I do not count my life as of any value to myself, you think he was being theoretical? When he said that, he was less than eight years away from the beheading at the hands of the Roman Empire. And I'm not trying to be grim. You're not ready to navigate the waters of a eroding civil liberty consensus around freedom of religion until you're ready to weigh What conformity to the world gets you, and what convictional defiance might cost you. Obligations. Well, let me talk about this for a second. We can, of course, legislate morality. Whenever anybody tells you, well, you know, you can't legislate morality. Ask them if theft is a moral issue. Yeah. I thought we had laws against that. Much of our body of law deals with morality. Well, you can't legislate morality as as a transparently ignorant statement on its face. However, you cannot legislate commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. That's the rub. We tried it one time. That was before many of our lifetimes. In fact, if I do the math right, you'd have to be far and away the most elderly person in the room to have been around for the beginning of this. Prior to 19, well, actually 1916 or 17 is when the thing took place. It became effective in 1920. A movement largely driven by well-meaning Followers of Christ, building upon their understanding of biblical principle, managed to have dropped into the United States Constitution, highest law of the land, a constitutional amendment born out of their deeply held religious convictions. The problem was the commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. The amendment was the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Do you remember what the 18th Amendment started in 1920? Prohibition. We won. Nobody's going to drink in the U.S. anymore. Right. You see what they did. They got a legislative victory the largest legislative victory one can get in the United States, a United States constitutional amendment. The problem was the people of the United States wanted to drink. The commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order said, I ought to be able to have a drink when I want one. And the attempt to impose a legislative issue that ran counter to those commonly held beliefs. Well, it hung on by a thread for 13 years. The 19th Amendment dealt with women's right to vote. At least we sobered up long enough to get you all that, sisters. (laughs) The 20th Amendment dealt with some common sense term limits. That sound familiar? What did the 21st Amendment do in 1933? Yeah, it pulled the plug on the 18th. Because every time you attempt a legislative victory that does not arise or rest upon transformation of commonly held core beliefs that legislative initiative isn't going to accomplish all you hope it will. I am thrilled, as you were, by the overturn of Roe v. Wade. And it's too early to make hard statistical evaluations. It is certainly the case that storefront Outlets where abortion is available are less than they were in the United States since the overturn of Roe. Various state legislatures have, have worked to reduce the number of storefronts you can walk up to and get an abortion, and that's a good thing. But most estimates of the effect on how many abortions are occurring in the United States since the overturn of Roe v. Wade is that they're down between 2 and 5%. So 95 to 97% of the abortions we had under Roe statistically are still happening. Because in our country today, there is a commonly held core belief regarding coherent social order that longs to have abortion. As nightmarish and horrific as that is. Overturning Roe v. Wade had about the same effect as the 18th Amendment. So what shall we do? I do not believe that our best response, based on the examples that I've shared, is a frontal attack on legislation. As useful as that can be. We are salt and light. And salt and light, and the effects of salt and light, are an indirect consequence of our gospel faithfulness. The gospel of Jesus Christ affects the social consensus. The gospel of Jesus, wow, that got stony silence. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and our faith. Salt and light do what they do because they are what they are. Unless the salt is deliberately contaminated and the light is hidden under a bushel. Salt purifies and light eliminate. And we are not commanded, read it in the Sermon on the Mount, check me on this, it's in Matthew 5. We are not commanded to be salt and light. We are described to be salt and light. And unless you are living in such a way that your salt is deliberately contaminated, unless you are making an effort to hide your light under a basket, your influence for the sake of the gospel as you are faithful, living out your Christianity with resolve, gets at the cultural consensus in ways that the imposition of legislation up to and including a constitutional amendment never will. And I say that with some confidence because we tried it in the years between 1920 and 1933. So what are our obligations? And with this, I'm done. A subset. There are more than these. But oh my, at least these. In no particular order. Biblical obedience and disciple making. Biblical obedience and disciple making. You then, my child, Paul writes to Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Fascinating. Fascinating that discipleship and suffering in the most classic verse on discipleship that I know of in the New Testament, suffering for Jesus is right there alongside it. Do you honestly think Paul meant to tell Timothy that we're to continue to do this one-on-one relationship-driven disciple-making even if we're suffering for our faith? Well, if he didn't mean to say that, he sure arranged his sentences in a kind of funny way. How are you cultivating those disciple-making relationships? Who ahead of you in your walk with God has brought you along? And in light of that, who who behind you are you bringing along? Because that's happening today in North Korea and China and Ukraine. Is it happening in your life? You want to you change the way a culture considers something. Get to the people in that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, gathering and worshiping with other believers. Gathering and worshiping with other believers. What if they take away our tax exemption on these 110 acres? Honestly, I'm surprised they haven't. I hope they never do. Is that it then? Is that it then? Does that, does that network of relationships I spoke of earlier suddenly just go whoosh, because we don't have these spectacular facilities or at least have to pay property taxes on them? Eh? Do we, do we, do we look to the civil magistrate for permission to obey Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, or do we obey it? And if we suffer, we suffer. There it is. There it is. Listen to what the word of God says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've seen how fragile the resolve to meet is when some magistrate decides it's not a good idea We shut down for six weeks voluntarily in the summer of 20. Some were told they couldn't meet and their response was, okay. Unfathomable. Another obligation and it's a Long study for another night. If you're not familiar with Romans 14, you should be. I read from Romans 13 earlier. Romans 14, I believe, may be the most important chapter in the New Testament on the balancing of individual, profoundly embraced freedoms in the life of the Christian. Here's what Romans 14 says in a nutshell. You go to the text and evaluate whether or not this is a sane captioning of Romans 14. Romans 14 says, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross has given you as a believer a legacy of spectacular freedom. Amen. Don't use it like a wrecking ball in the lives of other people who may or may not be where you are in understanding those freedoms. Don't let your spectacular liberty Cause you to just be. Love should reign in your freedom in ways law doesn't. Love should. In the, in the first century church, there was a huge issue as Gentile background Christians and Jewish background Christians came to church together. And the Jewish background Christians brought all kinds of. of of Old Testament law and cultural baggage to the worship of the living God that the Gentile Christians didn't necessarily buy into. And yet they were coming into these same churches. And I got the freedom to eat a sausage biscuit right in front of you. God ain't told me that I can't have a sausage biscuit. Your family for a 100 generations has been taught that nobody who loves the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would ever eat pork. Romans 14 says, put away your sausage biscuit because you love your brother, not because it's illegal for you to have a sausage biscuit. When you're with the brother who, who has that background and that restriction in their own framework, you who are strong and free, reign it in. Critical passage for a growing Christian living in a shared community with other believers. It's an obligation of our freedom and ambassadorship for heaven's sakes. Quote this a lot. I don't know how long it's been since I've read it. Hmm. Second Corinthians 5 verses 20 through 21. Therefore, we are Ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We implore you. We implore you. We come with a message from a king who's not from around here. We come bearing his message with intentionality and intensity. We implore you. Be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We bear that role irrespective of the shape of the culture around us. I end with this. Last slide. You will never need, you will never need a friendly civil environment. Remember, we're thinking biblically about religious liberty. You will never need a friendly civil environment that somehow enables you to think biblically, live missionally give generously, or love sacrificially. By now, you should recognize those are the four measures from the McGregor Baptist Church purpose (coughs) statement. Hope you spotted them. Would Would I prefer to do those in a context of fairly broad, unpersecuted liberty? Well, yeah, what do you think, I am a masochist? Of course I would. Would an erosion of those civil religious liberties cripple my ability to do that? No way. No way. Those are not unique to North America in the last 250 years. Those have been. The hallmark of faithful Christ, those and others, have been the hallmarks of faithful followers of Christ down two millennia all over the world. I ain't a prophet. I don't claim to be a prophet. I've said this before I can tell you the rest of your story on earth here it comes brace yourself this is spectacular that I can actually do this you're gonna have some days ahead that you're gonna love you're gonna have some days ahead you're gonna hate and if you're in Christ you're gonna go to heaven and live with him forever and that will be that joy is unassailable By shifting circumstances, your duty and joy in following Jesus is unassailable by shifting circumstances. Strive to live out your faith in the marketplace. Strive to be an informed and participating citizen. But remember... Informed, participative citizenship can make changes at the prohibition level that will work just that well. Faithfulness in evangelism and the gospel will make changes at a cultural consensus level if such changes are ever to be made again in our time and place. I started, and I'm going to pray in a moment, let you go. I started this evening by making a, a disclaimer regarding the difference between thus saith the Lord. Romans 13 says what it says. 2 Corinthians 5 says what it says. But the patchwork of what I've woven together tonight has a whole lot of here's what Russell thinks in And I'm so glad that among our various freedoms, is our freedom to see this matter differently. And I very much appreciate your hanging with me for this. Not the easiest teaching I've ever done. Um, And you are unfailingly gracious. It is a joy to be one of those charged with shepherding this body of Christ. I appreciate you more than I can comfortably articulate.
0: Pastor Russell, you said in this uh, session, actually you said it several times, but you talked about the commonly held core beliefs, but you said this, we cannot legislate the commonly held core beliefs regarding coherent social order. We only impact them indirectly by gospel faithfulness. And I love that. Uh, and if you were, those that were there watching live, you had both of these on a slide that night, but it reminded me as I was listening to this both uh, for the first time and then as I re-listened to this of a negative example and of just how well this can work. Yes, sir. And here's my negative example. Um, back in the summer of last year of 2022, it was back when our governor, Ron DeSantis, was talking about uh, some educational changes to Florida, and many of the the liberal media and many of the woke companies were all up in arms, especially here in the state of Florida, uh, about what he was proposing. And uh, Disney was one of those ones, and they got into a little bit of a tuffle back and forth yeah. between uh, Disney and uh, the state of Florida. But at that time, the Disney CEO, Bob Chapek, who is no longer the CEO, but at that time he was the the CEO and it was back sometime, I believe, in the the early going of that. It wasn't late toward his losing his position, but the employees of Disney were pushing him to do more politically. You need to do more politically. You You need to get more, we need to get more lobbyists. We need to do more, we need to do more, we need to do more. And he said something that was, I thought was extremely profound in responding to how these employees were pushing him. Here's what he said. He said, One of the ways Disney can make lasting change is through its content. Citing films like Encanto and TV shows like Modern Family. These and all of our diverse stories are our corporate statements and they are more powerful than any tweet or lobbying effort. And I thought that is Exactly what you were saying in reverse, I guess. The, yeah, the, the opposite. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, the 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 dynamic is the same. Now right. the way he's using it and the specific
1: outcomes he's striving for, yes, we would Very disagree different. with. Yes, but he's absolutely right that if you can if you can influence those commonly held core beliefs, mm-hmm. you cannot do that by passing a law. Right, which is where. Uh, and is it is it worth it to have righteous legislators and, and legislation that honors the Lord? Of course it is. But our power to influence culture in in Florida is not happening in Tallahassee. Absolutely. It's happening in our relationships and our circles mm. as we tell people about Jesus. Yeah.
0: And I think that was his point on that side was I can do a whole lot more through through what, I, what we communicate in our product. I promise you he can. Yes. Uh, we
1: all cried when Bambi died, and it did not take legislation to make that happen. Mm. Or Bambi's yeah. mama. Sorry, Bambi, yeah. I think, did okay. Yeah. But Bambi's mama, yes. our old yeller. Old yeller. Or any of those other things, they get right to the way mm. um, people relate feeling-wise to their world. Mm. And that common cultural consensus is what drives the train. And it... Will um, override in time legislation follows that consensus right the stuff our government is doing is not the
0: cause of of oddball cultural it's reactionary it 's the result that 's yeah. exactly right yeah yeah well I, I I love our church because we we focus mostly on the gospel and communicating that and sharing that. And seeing, letting that be the the change that happens in people's lives. You know, Paul. There, I mean, Mark. There are. I was thinking about Paul. If I got ahead of you, I know
1: your name. <laughs> um, there are. There are four times in the New Testament. Once with Jesus in his interactions with Pilate. Three times with Paul. His interactions with Governor Gallo Gallio in Corinth, and um, Festus uh, Felix and Festus in Israel. Four Roman governors confronted by Jesus and Paul. Mm. Um, and at no time is there a, and while I have your attention, let me tell you about the policies of the Roman government. (laughs) Every single time it is a conversation or confrontation about gospel issues, Mm -hmm. not government issues. Amen. Uh, And they had, they had audience with the Roman provincial governors and they told them about Jesus. Yeah. I think there's something instructive there.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to this special McGregor podcast, Thinking Biblically About Religious Liberty, part two. And don't forget to listen to the upcoming part three of this Hot topic series, a special Q&A podcast with uh, Pastor Russell himself. So we'll see you right back here soon.